0: My third time this year uh, speaking with you, and I'm privileged to do so. I'm just really grateful to be back. You folks are great people. I really like coming here, <clears throat> and uh, I must not have scared you too much because you let me come back. So that's that's a good thing. Just kind of as a as a review, uh, early in the year, I I came and I spoke to you about your tomorrow in uncertain times. Your tomorrow in uncertain times. And in that message, I talked about how God has you in his palms. He's got you covered. He's got your back. I spoke about how we are different from the world around us. I spoke about how we can have Jesus's peace daily, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, the the turmoil that's around us. And we we can have his peace. He said, he, Jesus us, promised us that he would give us his peace, his very own peace. And we have that when we keep our faith, our focus, on Jesus and what he did on the cross. When we see ourselves melded with him, molded with him, crucified with him, buried and raised with him, when we have that focus, that faith, of what his blood Covers us and what it accomplished, then we can live a lifestyle of peace in a tumultuous, uh, horrible world that's around us. And as we, main th- as we maintain that lifestyle of peace, we basically will have victory. We will become conquerors. In fact, we'll become more than conquerors and we will get rewards in heaven. Then, towards the end of March, I came and I talked to you about a mystery, and that mystery was the rapture. Jesus himself promised in in John 14 that, that he would come back and pick up those believers that are on the earth at that point in time. He said that it would be quick. We call that the rapture. And we talked about Where that is in Scripture, we talked about how it's going to occur and when it's going to occur. So this morning, we're going to look at what we are supposed to be doing while we're waiting for Him to come back and pick us up. We're going to look at what Jesus told us to do while we're waiting for Him to return. Let me give you a little bit of background into the the verse that we're going to, our our text this morning. Jesus and the disciples were up in Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel. And they're headed back down south on this dusty desert road. So they're going down south. The disciples are with them. People are starting to gather and follow him down. And... Jesus' mind and heart is focused on Jerusalem. He's going there. He knows he's going there to die. He's told the disciples that several times up north out in the hills outside of Galilee. He's told them on this trip down south, they don't get it. They don't understand it. They're confused. They don't believe what he's saying. And, and so they're headed down south, and they come to Jericho. <clears throat> Jericho's down in the valley by the river uh, Jordan. And so by this time, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people following him. And they come into, uh, as they come into Jericho, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like a cattle drive. And the cowboys, you see in those old westerns, as they, as they run the cattle through the town, there's cattle everywhere, on the sidewalks, just everywhere. That's what it was like with the people going into, Jeru- into Jericho. Thousands of people everywhere. They get to Jericho, and then there is this little weasel of a Jewish guy called Zacchaeus. He's a little short guy. Why do I call him a weasel? The Jews considered him, they hated him for two reasons. They considered him a traitor, a conspirator with the enemy. Why? Because he was a tax collector and he worked for the Roman Empire. And so he was collaborating with the enemy from the Jewish perspective. I'm sorry. I saw you put your sunglasses on. I thought, I can't be that bright. (laughs) 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 Uh, I apologize. Anyway. Zacchaeus, this little Jewish uh, co- uh, collaborator with the enemy, he <laughs> they didn't like him at all because he was a traitor. And the second reason they didn't like him is because he was a tax collector. The Roman government would say, uh, let's say they would t- tell him collect 10% from every family. Well, he would go collect 15% and pocket the difference. So he was getting rich off of his brothers and sisters in the neighborhood, at the same time working for the enemy. They hated him. He was a little short weasel of a guy. So they're in Jericho, thousands of people in in crowd in the whole place. This little guy can't see above the tall people. So what does he do? He climbs up into a sycamore tree and looking down so he can see Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus has just been walking for seven days to get down to Jericho and Jerusalem. He's, he's hungry. And he sees this rich guy up in a tree, and he says, he's got good food. I'm going to go eat with him. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat dinner with you tonight. And so he goes and has dinner with Zacchaeus, and what happens? For some reason, Jesus saves him. He gets saved. This little weasel of a guy, gets saved. Why is it that Jesus saves people that you and I don't like? Because that's his job. So Zacchaeus gets saved. Then the next day, he's leaving leaving Jericho, headed farther up into the hill country to Jerusalem. And by this time, as he gets closer to Jerusalem, there are tens of thousands of people crowding around and following Jesus. And they get to uh, near near the Mount of Olives, just a few miles away, to a little village called Bethany and Bethphage. And Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. That's where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Tens of thousands of people are there crowding around and following Jesus, listening for what he's saying in the tumult of all the people as they're going by. Why were they there? They wanted to see the man that was dead and is now alive, Lazarus. Was that really true? They wanted to see him. And they thought this guy, who they wanted to see the guy who did it. This guy must be the promised Messiah if he's raising people from the dead. They wanted to see Jesus. The crowds gathered, and this was right before that scripture where Jesus uh, has his disciples go get a a little burrow, and he rides into Jerusalem on this burrow, and everybody is throwing down their uh, uh, palm leaves and their coats and cloaks and robes praising him as God, as the Messiah, as as their, their coming, present Messiah. So, that is what was going on. And in that situation, Jesus tells them a parable. Why did he pick this particular time to tell this particular parable? Because, The disciples and the crowds were thinking one thing when exactly the opposite was going to happen. And he tells them this parable. He says in Luke 19 verses 11 through 26, he says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 pounds. That's one pound each he gave them. And said to them, occupy until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent an embassy after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, He commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him so that he might know what they had gained by trading. The first servant came before him, saying, Lord, your pound has made ten pounds more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a little, very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second servant came and said, Lord, Uh, Your pound has made five pounds. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your pound, which I kept laid away in a napkin, because I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you out of your own mouth you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money into the bank and at my coming I should have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. And the people complained and said, Lord, he's already got 10 pounds. I tell you that to everyone who has will more be given. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the holy word of our living God. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that we thank you for your your mercy to us. We thank you for your saving grace. We thank you that you've given us your word so that we can learn of you. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit might impress the truth of your word on all of our hearts and minds this morning so that we can bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're not supposed to be sitting around doing nothing and twiddling our thumbs as we wait for Jesus to come back. We're not supposed to be twiddling our thumbs. We're not supposed to be monks set aside far away from society in some distant, remote monastery, although some of us would kind of like that. But we're not supposed to be that. We are not of this world but we are in this world. Satan is the ruler of this world, we're told in John fourteen three. He is the God of this world, we're told in Second in Corinthians four. He's the spirit of this world in First Corinthians twelve uh, two. He is the prince of the power of the air, we're told in Ephesians. He owns this world. Why does he own it? Because God gave him that authority thousands upon thousands of years ago. It's a different whole <clears throat> study in itself, but he has authority over this world. He has the legal right here. So if he has the legal right and the authority over this world, if he's the, um, the ruler of this world, the God of this world, the spirit of this world, and the prince of the power of the air that's around us. If if that's so, then what is this world that it's talking about? Well, <clears throat> the world encompasses the governmental systems of mankind. It is mankind's arranged and adorned order of things, it's interhuman moral regulations. It's systems of government. It is a universal viewpoint that is absent of the knowledge of God, that is dominated and controlled by the sin nature. Another way to put it is that uh, this world, it is the world order of civilization and political powers. It's the viewpoint of the civilization that we're in the way they think, and how they view things through the skewed eyes of a sin nature. It is a hostile realm towards God. Why? Because the basis of their viewpoint is a godless existence controlled and dominated by the sin nature which perverts and bends their thoughts and their ideas. And we can see this manifested in our politics. We can see it in the, quote, critical race theory that is being pressed into every aspect of our culture. This is a theory that is Marxist and designed to kill the Constitution of the United States. It is designed to eliminate God. It's designed to eliminate the church. And it's designed to eliminate the free thought of Christians. It is being pressed into politics is being pressed into our school systems, even as, as young as kindergarten. It is being uh, pressed into corporations. It's everywhere. It's, it's, it's just like you would press olives or, or grapes and the juice just run over and get into everything. Or if you take uh, uh, some grease and press it into axle bearings, The bearings, you can see that that, that grease ooze and permeate through and press through all the different crevices and cracks around those bearings and the casings. This poison is permeating every aspect of our society. Why? Because the church, over the years, has done nothing to stop it. We've allowed it to happen. We can see this anti-God worldview in our culture with all the anger, the angst, and the hatred of one another, the intolerance, and the violence. In John 10.10, Jesus says that the enemy, Satan, only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Just like we see in the violence, the looting, the anarchy that we see in our streets. That is not... Of God. No matter how you dress up a pig, a pig is still a pig. What we see in our culture is pure evil. No matter how you try to frame it otherwise, the cancel culture, abortion, the LGBTQT, uh, transgenderism stuff. It is, it, it, no matter how you try to dress these up, they are still pure evil. Our culture, our society is spinning out of control. The world is an evil force, it is an anti God world system encompassing thoughts, opinions, Maxims and speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, and aspirations. It encompasses the moral, immoral, and amoral power of mankind without God. We are not of the world. That is not us. But we are in that world. We're told that uh, that we're not of the world in John chapters 15 and 17. In fact, Jesus himself sends us into the world in John 17, 18. And And in his prayer that he's praying to God, he says, don't take them out of the world, but protect them and keep them while they are in the world. So, we are in a hostile foreign land, in a system of thought surrounded by a worldview that hates God, the one who, whom we love. So what is to be our thought? What is to be our action? How are we, are to, how are we to interact with this world? What are we supposed to do well, the, Jesus tells us we're to occupy. Occupy. When I think of the word occupy, I think about a, uh, an occupying army. Uh, a military occupation is a type of effective control of one government over another t- a country, another territory. That's not under the, the, the sovereignty of that initial government. And they do it without the people's permission it's not a voluntary thing. It's provisional, which means that they're there for a short time until a, a proper permanent government can be established. Three basic characteristics of an occupying army. One is the army is forced onto, uh, from one country, is forced onto the residence of another country. Second characteristic is that that army is there temporarily. Temporarily. They're there until a legitimate permanent government can be established, and then that occupying army is removed. The residents that are being occupied have no citizenship rights in the occupying army's country. For example, um, if, if our country was to occupy Greenland, Greenland citizens have no citizenship in America. America. They have no rights with the occupying army. Some examples of occupying armies are Japan occupied Korea, uh, 1905 to 1910. Italy occupied Libya, 1911 to 1912. Serbia occupied Albania, 1912 to 1913. The US occupied Nicaragua from 1912 to 1933. Argentina occupied the Falkland Islands in 1982. That didn't go too well for them. And there were more than five countries that occupied Afghanistan from the year 2001 to 2016. If you look this up on the internet, you'll see, you'll see page after page after page of historical examples of occupying armies, one country's army occupying another. So what is the job the duty or the function of an occupying army. It's to live in the land and function within a conquered territory. In fact, historically, some armies actually brought, some soldiers actually brought their families with them while they were there in that foreign land. So it's to live in the land and to function within that occupied territory. The second main function of them is to maintain order, and the third is to ensure peace. One of the euphemisms that we, the church, are called is the army of God. We are living in a conquered territory. This world has already been conquered by Jesus. He has overcome the world, we're told in John sixteen thirty three. That's past tense. It's already conquered, and they don't know it but they are indeed a conquered country. Jesus has conquered sin through the blood that he shed on the cross, giving of his life. He broke the power of that sin nature within us. He paid the penalty for that sin. And this world is a conquered territory because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. When the allied forces landed and Normandy on D-Day, the Second World War was over. They didn't. Germans didn't know it, but that war was over and done, and we won. Now, granted, there had to be some pretty nasty battles to take place before it fulfilled and, and we realized that. But uh, but it was over. They were conquered. They were done, and they didn't know it. They had already lost. Satan and the world don't realize it yet, but they have already lost, and Jesus and us, as we are in Jesus, melded with him, molded with him, Jesus and us have already won. We won because we are in Christ, melded with him, and we are partakers of his experience and his victory just like I shared with you before that that picture of the kangaroo, we are in Christ, melded with him. Because because we're in Christ, his victory is our victory. We're told told in, in Ephesians 4 that Jesus led captivity captive and he gave some gifts. <clears throat> what does that mean? Before, before the cross, in Old Testament times, Old Testament saints, people who believed, who loved God, who believed in his salvation, who were looking forward to that Messiah Savior that they, what was promised, those Old Testament saints, when they died, they went to a place called Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is also called paradise. Same Two names for the same place. When Jesus was on the cross and dying that day, he turned to the thief next to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, where and what is paradise? There are, from what we understand, there are two different separate areas of hell. One is called paradise, Abraham's bosom, which is a relatively safe place where, people hang out <clears throat> before the cross previous to the cross and the second place in hell is hate is sheol is that is that burning fire torture nasty place so there's two places in hell why did the old testament saints have to go hell to hell to paradise because their sin was not paid for. Jesus' blood, sacrifice on the cross, paid for their sin. Up to that point, they believed in the offerings, the, the, the sacrificial offering systems. But we're told in the scripture that the blood of goats and lambs cannot take away our sin. It covers it. Atonement. It covers that sin and makes for some rudimentary basic relationship with God that the, shed, the, the, the blood of lambs and goats covers atones for that sin so that we can have some sort of basic relationship but it doesn't get rid of the sin it's like this <clears throat> if you have a, a, a tile floor or a wood floor and you sweep the dirt up with the broom from and get it into a pile on the floor You then lift up the rug, you sweep that dirt under the rug, and you put the rug back down. The floor is clean, presto. But the dirt is still there. It is covered over. That's what the blood of goats and lambs did. When Jesus paid the penalty for sin with his blood, the scripture says that he takes that sin away. There's no more dirt on the floor to sweep under the rug. That's the difference between what Jesus did on the cross versus the Old Testament saints. So the Old Testament saints did not have their their sin taken away. They still had that sin nature there. It was still there until the cross. And then after the cross, it says the scripture says that when Jesus died that day that he went down to hell. He went to paradise. He talked to the people that were there who were held captive by satan satan had the legal right for them to control over them because god gave satan the authority over this world he has the legal right their sin had not been removed that debt was still needed to be paid jesus went to hell he preached the gospel and He rose. He took those people that were captive. He took them captive to himself. And when he rose, he took them with him. So that paradise now is empty. He took those Old Testament saints with him. In fact, the scripture says that he took the keys of death and Hades with him when he left. He has control of that. He has the authority over that. Why? Because he paid the penalty with his blood. He conquered. He has all authority and he has all power. And we, you and I, are in him. Covered by him. As his conquering army, we are to occupy this world. We are in. This world, and we are to occupy it. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. This world does not have our citizenship in heaven, just like an occupying army. We are to keep order and give them peace. Well, how do we keep the order? By in boldness giving them Jesus, and giving them Jesus' peace. That's what's going to change this world. Not politics, not money, not ingenuity, but the the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit working through people's lives. We keep the order by giving them Jesus' peace, in boldness speaking the truth, and loving people into the kingdom of God. In our, in our parable, verse 13 says, And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds. That was one pound each. And he said to them, Occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. We're to occupy in boldness. Occupying armies, the soldiers, they were really arrogant in, many, in most situations. We're told that we're not given the spirit of fear, but we're told that we're given the spirit of power, love, and that God is with us. Just like like the song uh, that's taken from Deuteronomy and and Joshua, Be bold, be strong. Why? For the Lord thy God is with thee. Occupy. Occupy. Occupy, the word is pragmatiuomahi. Say that real fast. (laughs) It took me a long time to figure out how to pronounce that, by the way. It means to busy oneself, to trade. It is where we get the word pragmatic or practical from. This Greek word is a verb, which means it's an action. It's you doing something. And Jesus is telling you that you're supposed to be doing something, acting. It This verb is a plural, which means it's meant for men, women, and everybody. This verb is an errorist, which means it has a beginning and it has an end. It's temporary during that time, and it's supposed to be done completely all the time during that time, from the beginning to the end. Whatever the verb is telling us to do... Were to do it during the whole time period from beginning to end. Just like an occupying army, it is provisional. It's temporary until a permanently replaced government comes along. In our situation, that government is God's millennial kingdom, his true government where, when Jesus st- stays on this earth and reigns for a thousand years. This verb is an imperative verb, which means it's not a suggestion It is a command. You occupy. To occupy has a dual application. It means, uh, just as an occupying army in a foreign land, it means that we are to live here practically, working, doing business, feeding our family, interacting in this world. But at the same time, in boldness, giving them the peace of Christ. Loving them into the kingdom of God. In boldness, sharing the truth about Jesus, the gospel, and how they need him. It means not being afraid to stand up for truth, impurity, and righteousness in a fallen anti-God world. There is a reason you have the neighbors that you have. I don't live there. Occupy with those neighbors. Be bold enough to share the truth with them about their lost state because of the sin nature that's within and how the blood of Christ paid the penalty for that sin nature and broke the power of that sin nature within the individual and how they can live a free, abundant life in Christ Jesus because of his blood. God has you in your work situation where you are. Nobody else is there. You're there, so occupy in this manner with those people at work. In our parable, verse 12, the nobleman is, of course, Jesus. And he's going away to receive his kingdom, and he will then return to establish his millennial kingdom on this earth, the thousand years that he's gonna reign on this earth. And he has the legal right to do so. Why? Because he paid the penalty for sin on the cross with his life. He broke the power of that sin nature in our lives, and his resurrection validates that and makes us know that it's true. In verse 13, the nobleman gave. Jesus has given. What has he given you? In 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 the parable, the nobleman gave money a talent a pound a, a a dollar bill he gave the servants money what has jesus given you we're told in, in scripture we're told that he has given us the ability to make wealth in deuteronomy 8 he's given us his holy spirit He's given us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's given you your personality, your character, your skills. Work with these. The command is you occupy. Use those in a way to bring glory to Jesus until he returns. Verse 15, he, the nobleman Jesus, returned and the servants, that's you and I, The servants were called before him to make an account. Ooh, that nasty word, accountability. Nobody likes to hear or be held accountable. In the military, they have inspections to make sure you cleaned the way you were supposed to clean. They have inspections to make sure you did the job the right way that you were supposed to do it. At my office and staff meetings, we have weekly staff meetings, and I hold people accountable for what the job was they were supposed to do. Did you actually do the job or just ignore me? And if you did the job, did you do it right? And if you went above and beyond, in a way, that should I be rewarding you for that? Accountability. For us Christians the occupying army of God, our accountability is the judgment seat of Christ, also called the bima seat. That's the Greek word. We are going to be held accountable for what we have done with what God has given us. In the parable, the servants uh, each had a dollar to start with, and the one guy came and and he multiplied his dollar to ten dollars. And the nobleman says, then you're going to rule over 10 cities. The next servant came and said, I took that dollar and I've made $5. And he said, well, you're going to rule over five cities. This dovetails with what I shared with you in that first sermon earlier this year, that when, as conquerors, we are going to get rewarded. And one of our rewards is that we're going to be rulers, administrators, governors in Jesus's kingdom, thousand-year kingdom. And we're going to be rewarded in giving that, based upon what we have done now. Then the third servant came and he said, he said I've got your dollar and I, I wrapped it up and I just really stuck it in this drawer and kept it nice and safe for you. And, and the nobleman was really angry. And he took it away and he gave it to the one who actually did something with what God had given him. What has God given you? Accountability. This parable agrees with what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians when he says that our works will be tested by fire. Anything that is wood, hay, or stubble will be burned up, made useless, gone. And only what was done out of a pure heart for God will last. As believers, we too often forget about this whole concept of accountability because we don't like to be held accountable. When you tell your children to do their chores, you kind of expect them to to get the job done, and you hold them accountable, or at least you should. At the Bema judgment seat of Christ, Jesus will hold us accountable. We will be rewarded, or we will be humiliated. One of the two. There's no in-between. As I begin to wrap this up this morning, in Romans 14, we're told that it says in verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're told, Paul tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in this body. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells us in verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word that they utter. Ooh. That's tough. That is tough. Every careless word. Be careful what you say to her. You might be thinking, judgment, why? I thought I was saved and going to heaven. You are if you're covered by the blood of Christ. And when you will get there, you will either be rewarded or you'll get there and not get any rewards. Have you ever gone to a party where all kinds of presents were handed out to everybody coming? A warm gift, warm uh, housewarming gifts, whatever, and everybody got gifts, but you didn't get anything. How would that make you feel? You and I were saved by the blood of Christ, by God's grace through faith. But we were saved for the purpose of good works, bringing glory to God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of any works that you've done, lest any person should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, why? For the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. To walk in good works, a lifestyle, the way you live, should be a lifestyle of good works. And what are those good works? It's actions done in humility, humble purity, for the benefit of demonstrating God's love to somebody who's lost, otherwise known as occupying. Occupy. Be bold and strong and tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Be bold and strong and love them into the kingdom of God. We are not of this world, but we are in it. And God has sent us into this world as his occupying army to carry out his plan until Jesus comes back to set up his earthly kingdom. His plan is to tell everybody the truth about mankind's lost status due to their sin nature. To explain to them that Jesus, the God-man, God incarnate, to explain to them that he paid the penalty for their sin nature and broke the power of that sin nature in their lives so that they could live life more abundantly. And his resurrection validates that fact, validates that victory. In this world, occupy. Practically taking care of your family, using your ability to make wealth, using your personality, your talents, your spiritual gifts to boldly share the gospel and love others into the kingdom of God. You choose. You are choosing and you will choose which servant you will be when you stand before the Lord. The one who gets 10 times the reward or the one whose works will be burnt up and gone and leaving you empty-handed? Please, please occupy. Occupy in the way that Jesus expects of us and love somebody into the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you, God, that your grace and, and blood has saved us. Your sacrifice has done everything to get us this relationship with you, this eternal positive destiny with you. You've promised God an end-time harvest I pray, Father, that these workers, your children here, will be partakers in that harvest and will give you increase in what you have given them so that you can be glorified. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.